make it there and can make it back. Salutations and shit, folks. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of your favorite travel podcast, Travel and Shit. I changed the angle so y'all could actually see this when I actually say it, because I always do the uh, the boob gesture because I generally have a shirt on. But anyway, where I, your host, D. Carrie, have an experiential conversation about the nuanced ways that travel intersects with regular life. I'm happy you're here because I enjoy not talking to the wall. You know, I like seeing that people are actually listening. So I appreciate y'all because you fuck with the kid. So if you're watching, because the podcast is also available on the YouTubes, I will include the link in the description box if you have not already subscribed to the YouTube channel. I've got a guest. And so this one I was really excited for. Really, really excited for. And I will no doubt... Y'all figure it out soon, so I'm going to get to it. So my beautiful guest, if you would please introduce yourself. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Lovely to be here. I am Inky Creswell. I'm a wildlife filmmaker, marine biologist, underwater photographer person who spends the majority of my time chasing big sharks around the ocean, and I absolutely love it. And how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 27. So um yeah, but a I got whole into a marine <laughs> biologist, y'all. Like <laughs> degrees. So how did you get into this? Because a lot of us fall into work. Um, but I, I don't feel like you just fall into marine biology. So what was your inspiration? Strangely, I think I was one of the few people that kind of fell into it. I was uh from a really young age, grew up by the ocean. And my dad loves the ocean and he grew up watching Cousteau and was obsessive about it. And just, I think I was just brought into it from such a young age. His fascination with the ocean, just, I was so attracted to it and just absolutely adored spending time in the sea. And I think the more time that I spent kind of exploring my local coastline, exploring the rock pools, the more questions I had. And I found that Mm -hmm. I was just always searching for answers, trying to understand this amazing place. So I think um, I was one of the few people who was very lucky. And by the age of about five or six, I'd already decided I was going to be a marine biologist. (laughs) So for me, kind of my entire life has revolved around this ocean space. And um, I've been very fortunate that it's allowed me to go on some incredible expeditions and open some fantastic doors. So you said your local coastline. What's local for you? So I'm from from? Brighton, the south coast of England. So freezing cold water, pebble beaches, the kind that most people don't like to walk across. But um, I will happily swim there. I was swimming in it on New Year's Day in freezing cold water and gloves and a hat on and still love it. Jesus Christ. So wait, how far is that from London? Because that's low key. Super close. Okay. (laughs) So like a 45 minute train ride outside of London. And it's crazy to me because I have so many friends in London who are like, oh, yeah, I've never been in the sea. And I'm like, you live so close. You're practically a beach town. I never would have thunk that London was close to the fucking ocean. (laughs) <laughs> so many I don't know women. why that so was so, <laughs> was so fucking like, what so that's like queen well queens has a lot of not a lot but queens has beaches because I'm from New York so queens has um beaches but for the most part I don't really fuck with queens beaches y'all I go out to Long Island and for me that's about a 45 minute drive so you got London is like right there Tickle me surprise. Geog- geography, geology, geography is locations. Geology are the rocks and shit, but neither are my <laughs> ministry at all. I don't, I loved science, but I um, kind of left that in high school. Sister Kitsy, I, I, if she's still fucking alive, it was you, bitch. 
that was you. You ruined all of the science that I had in my heart. And I really, as a, I fall down rabbit holes, if you're noticing now. Teachers, please just pour into these babies. The new school mm. year is here. <laughs> and so many of us have these huge dreams. And then we get to a class that is very important to said dream. I wanted to be a doctor. And then I had chemistry not even like important chemistry, high school chemistry. And that teacher really crushed that for me. So pour into your babies, teachers, like be gentle with them. Kids are all assholes and just realize that they are working their best through those asshole tendencies to be adults. So don't squalor their adultness while they're teenagers. Sorry about that tangent. Um, so what exactly do you do? What does a marine bio- biologist do? Do you just walk across the beach and like see how close the tide comes in? Or do you, are you always in the water? What is, and you're not just a marine, marine biologist, like you've got titles. So what is an average day for you? Yeah. Look like? What do you do? So I'm a little different. I actually don't technically work in marine science. I was one of the people who I went to university and studied marine biology completely fell in love with the subject and I think for me growing up I was convinced that I was going to be the kind of the Jane Goodall type that gets to go and study behavior and just hang out all the time watching these species and understanding them but I realized that that was a luxury we couldn't afford for the state of our oceans today and unfortunately conservation became the biggest drive in all of my work because I realized that I really need to be protecting these ecosystems more than trying to understand them and obviously Mm. understanding them plays a huge role in how we protect them but I didn't feel like I could just focus on the behavioral sciences I'd imagined. And I needed to be much more strategic with the way that I went about doing things. So it was when I was about 19, 20, that I started playing a lot more with underwater photography and filmmaking. And that was eventually kind of what drew me in was because I realized that through film and through photography, I could take other people into this amazing world with me. And when I finished university, I spent some time working as a research assistant, running around the world doing shark tagging, which was incredible so that was kind of more of the typical marine biologist world where we would go out on expedition boats sometimes like three days offshore with a load of um modified spear guns which are like these it it looks like a a massive gun for underwater and we would replace the darts with satellite tags Mm. and a really good friend of mine William who's just the world's most fantastic free diver literally won records and just an amazing diver he would free dive down next to these sharks and tag them. And then me and my friend Lucas would help with the biopsies and the sampling and um, all of that information would kind of get put together so that we could understand where these sharks were going and what they were doing so that we can protect them. So that was when I was working much more kind of in your typical marine biology world. But now I'm much more so on the filmmaking side of things. So I work with scientists all around the world and I try and understand their research to find out what new behaviors are being discovered, what new research is taking place, what big conservation discussions are going on and find ways to communicate their science to a much bigger audience, which I absolutely love. So you see how we got here, folks. This is why I was fucking excited for this one. So Running that back, I was raised on Shark Week. So when you said swimming next to the sharks, <laughs> th- this is this is where my fear, you know what it is? In fairness to me, I think that my fear of the ocean is because in general, I just fear the unknown. And I know that there is just so much of the ocean that we just don't get. We don't know. We don't understand. It's, it's expansive. It's huge. And me, whose degree was not in science or any of the sciences, I did communications, which is basically liberal arts folks, but I, I don't know shit. 
And so of all the weird and not weird, but of all the exciting and fun things I've done in the water, I don't know what the fuck I'm jumping in with. All I know is that there are sharks here and I can get eaten by a shark. And I don't care if I'm in Miami and I can see my toes or if I'm in Guadalupe and I'm boobs high and I can still see my toes. I, in my head, there's a shark and it's like not far and I'm gonna get got. So were you ever afraid of being in the ocean? Have you ever had a close call with the shark? Like this, I want to, that I want to know. So um, yes and and yes. (laughs) So I think for me very much so exactly what scares you about the ocean is what I love about it. I love the Mm. unknown. I love that I never know what I'm going to see. I love that every single dive is different and that every time I put my put my head underwater in that world I have no idea what to expect and there's something absolutely fascinating for me about that. It's like exploring another planet over and over and over again. And some of the species you get to encounter down there just take your breath away. I mean, I've done night dives where the entire ocean lights up with bioluminescence and you feel like you're in space. And I've done dives where you have whale sharks hanging over your head or you get engulfed by reef fish. And it's those moments for me that like they are by far the best seconds of my life. And I, I just want to live there. I want to live in those moments and live in that unexpected. And I think it's it's when something happens that I don't expect that it really feels special. Mm. Mm. Um, but I was very lucky in the sense that because my dad also loves the ocean, I remember being about probably about six or seven snorkeling with him and the sharks ran past and his first reaction was he shouted at me and went, swim faster. You're going to miss it. <laughs> and it was this like pure me, excitement <laughs> of just like, come on, like, hurry up. This is going to be amazing. And I think that when you're at that age and you're kind of, your your mind is so open and you don't know mm-hmm. what to be scared of yet. Yeah. He kind yeah. of taught me that sharks are something that's exciting, something that's beautiful and amazing to see and a privilege to see. And um, yeah, I've been, I've been chasing them ever since. So it's been, it's been a pretty wild ride, but um, for sure there's been moments that I think I've had to be careful and You've got to remember, I think whenever I talk to people about sharks, it's not that I want you to not fear them. Mm-hmm. I think that they should be feared to a level. Um, but I think it's more about learning to respect them. Like when I'm in the water, it's kind of understanding you are an apex predator. You had big teeth and you could definitely kill me if you wanted to. Like that's the reality of it sometimes. But it's also understanding their behavior and them as a species. And realistically, they don't want to kill you. We're not a right. part of their food. That's not what they're there for. So you, once you kind of put things into perspective and actually start to look at the numbers, you realize, oh, I'm not really at risk how I'm just interacting with a big animal in the same way you would with any other big animal. You have to be respectful of that and you have to just learn to live in coexistence. And when you can get to that point, then you can start to appreciate the beauty of them. And they are absolutely stunning to see them move through the water and the presence they demand is something really special. I think I would shit myself in the ocean. <laughs> I would absolutely like, but at the same time, I think that I might surprise myself. I think I might surprise myself. Yeah, I've spent some time out in Guadeloupe and it is amazing watching like the variety of people that go on these shark boats out and you get some who are like the shark fanatics, the ones that are diehard Shark Week fans, absolutely shark obsessed, probably reading Jaws on the way out there. <laughs> And then you get the others who are the best mate, who's clearly been dragged along and is absolutely terrified and is debating whether or not they'll even get in the water. And they are just in pure panic stations, probably throwing up over the boat for the whole two day boat ride and just having the worst day of their lives. But over like the three or four days you spend in the water, it is amazing watching people's perspectives change. 
And I have not seen a single person who hasn't left the water going, oh, that was actually amazing. And I, I just wish that all these people who are so terrified, I could put in that position and allow them to see that because I think, um, yeah, I really think you would survive yourself. I say that, but I'm terrified of spiders. So don't put me near one of those. <laughs> same, same. I, I, I promise the same way I think every spider is out to get me. I oh, absolutely think that like every shark is out to get me. And I know logically, D, it's not the fucking case. They, they don't. <laughs> They don't care. But in my head, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't match. But before I get to the conservation part, I'm assuming that this is a very male dominated um, environment. Because I mean, now granted, my experience with people that go out on boats, I don't even know what the proper term is, from marine biologists, whenever you see this type of work portrayed, it's always a bunch of white guys on boats, or you've got uh, locals that'll join the white guys on the boats, and it's a bunch of men, and then of course there's the the sexy decoy, like the, the J-Lo and Anaconda with the, the shorts and the tied up top kind of thing. What is your experience like as a woman and also a black woman in these types of spaces? First of all, am I right? Or, or are there just a ton of women that do it? And then if not, then please. <laughs> it's a mix. I think the hardest, okay. most marine biologists, like what you want is you want to be doing field research. That's the dream, right? You want to be the people who are out there on the boats mm -hmm. in the water. And I think that when you get to that level, unfortunately, there's a lot more men. And I think it's mm -hmm. partly because what I've noticed in the industry a lot is the men are a lot more confident. They will immediately say, yes, I can do it. Whereas the girls are like, yeah, I think I can. And it's, it's so frustrating because so often the girls are so much more qualified, but they won't say they're qualified unless they feel 100% confident in themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's tricky in that sense. And I think that, so when you get out to these kind of bigger expedition boats, usually you do get a lot more men. But when I was studying marine biology at university, my classes were mainly women. When I did my oh. dive instructor course, even it was mainly women. And I think you are getting a bigger gender shift. But unfortunately, when you actually look at the science, most of the, so in marine biology or in any science, what you normally do with all of that research that you collect, you then write papers and your papers are like how you then present your work to the world. And being first author on your paper is so important because that's basically you saying, I was the expert on this paper. I was the one doing this research. And unfortunately, um, all of the kind of the gender just shifts completely and it's suddenly male dominated, hmm. which doesn't make any sense considering the amount of women that are working in this field. So there's still kind of... Um, a bit of a power struggle to get women into those higher up positions. And I think that often who you would see on screen acting as a marine biologist will usually be who is considered to be the expert in the field, which is who's the one who has been that first offer over and over again. So it's definitely something that we need to see more of a change in. And I think especially when it comes to black women and just people who are genuinely just not white, we are starting to see more of an appetite for that on TV, but it is, um, it is frustrating. We are nowhere near where we should be yet. And I think that's part of the reason why I loved kind of jumping from marine biology into wildlife filmmaking is because I have the opportunity to kind of bring that representation onto the screen. And as a director, I can make the choices of who I'm going to interview as my key scientist. Mm -hmm. Do I want to choose the white guy who's the supervisor of the project because he has international funding and has come over from another country? Or do I want to pick the local biologist who's here every day working with the community? And maybe he's not the highest qualified, but he's the one who's doing the groundwork. And 
we can make those conscious decisions on who we put as kind of the face of these organizations and as the face of this research. And I think that's, um, that's pretty cool. Have you had any experiences where you felt like all of this work was like derailed because of boundaries like that? Any, I don't want to say setbacks, but like, you know, how sometimes in your head you think like, fuck, this is it. Like I did all of this and now this obstacle or that obstacle. What have been some challenges that you faced um, that you may feel maybe, well, I mean, I feel like challenges across the board are challenges, right? But sometimes you understand something to be unique to your field or unique to your experience. Have you had any uh, difficulties like that? I think in terms of like the biggest setback for me is I remember uh, it was super early on. It was when I was doing my A-levels. So in the UK, you have to take A-levels to get into university. Okay. And so that's not high those. school. So I, yeah, high school, okay. 18. Okay. Before so, university. Well, so the it's the four years like the of last, school? No. So just the last two years of school. Before high uh, college, well, university. Yeah. Okay. So you do like primary school. So, okay, let's see. In America, we do (laughs) primary school, which is generally um, two through, well, not two, but like three to say 11 or 12. Then we do like middle school, which is maybe sixth, seventh and eighth grade, like your 12 to 13 year olds, give it like 11 to 13, I think. And then in high school, so like, there's nothing between that. So there's junior high and then there's high school. And then if you're going to go to college or university, you go straight through. And the only thing between um, high school for us, which is generally 14 to 18 year olds, depending on where you kind of fall, whatever age. And then we'll do like um, what do you call the SATs or ACTs, like whatever test is going to gauge how smart people want to tell you that you are, and then, you know, get you into whatever college or university you're going to apply to. Does that fall into any kind of spectrum that you guys have? Okay. So what we have is we have, um, it's, I actually don't like the UK system because I think if it's too much pressure on young people to know exactly what you want to do way Mm -hmm. too early. So for us, we have primary school from four to 11. Okay. Um, and then from 11 to 16, you are in high school. And then at 16, but when you're 14, you drop half your subjects. You pick half the half that you want to continue with. And there's core subjects you have to continue with. But you basically like, you ax out a whole load of them. And it's based on those subjects you take and how well you do in those exams is what you can study at sixth form, which is just two years, 16 to 18. And you only study three subjects. <laughs> when you're 16 to 18 yeah so by the time and then it's those three subjects or four subjects you do one you do half of one of them and then you do three completely and it's based on how you do on those which is what degree you can go on to study at university so if you You make the wrong decision go on to yeah so if you make the wrong decision at 14 you're you've got the wrong GCSEs and then you can get the wrong A levels and then you have the wrong A levels to do the right degree so it's like you have to work backwards, which is too much pressure on a kid. Yeah, that's that's a lot of work. That's stressful. <laughs> yeah, like I couldn't so, even choose a favorite fucking color at 14, you know? Exactly. And it's normally wow. based on what you're good at rather mm-hmm. than what you're passionate about. And I think right. that's kind of one of the biggest issues because like for me, I'm artistic. I just love the ocean. So it was all my teachers being like, oh, you should do art and music and graphics and photography. And I was like, but I want to do science. And they were like, yeah. oh, you sure? I think you'd be better doing this. And you kind of get pigeonholed into mm-hmm. where you, you, you fit the most. And I think for me as well, being black, there's this assumption that you don't belong in the sciences mm-hmm. and that you would be more creative and that you should be into the arts. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the, 
the normal way that they would push you because that's what they expect of you and for me when I was doing my A-levels I remember I actually transferred from a big state school which was not a good school okay um where I didn't even have teachers in the majority of my classes to going to a private sixth form because I really wanted to go to university and my parents Mm -hmm. were like okay we'll pay for the last two years for you to do really well so that you can get into university because otherwise there was no chance I would get to go and um I worked so so hard (laughs) and I remember I got a like a 98 percent on my mock exams and I was the second highest growing kid in my exams wow and then when my predicted grades came out my teachers wouldn't predict me above a c and you shouldn't make what wait (laughs) what the fuck is a predicting grade so the grade that's the grade that you use to apply for university okay so what is what's predictable about it you either earn it or you don't ain't that how a grade works that's not how it works it should be but instead it's kind of your teacher going oh but this is what we think is realistic (gasps) shut the fuck up yeah because I was the black kid that came from the state school that wouldn't fit into the private schools and they kind of looked at my exams and they looked at me and they went but that's not realistic, is it? I think this is a more realistic grade for you. Let's not set you up for something you can't achieve. And um, and that was that really sucked because I was kind of like watching all my dreams fall away and going, if they don't move up my grade, just based off their opinion of me, I'm not going to get into any university to study any of the things I want. And it would have kind of stopped, stopped my entire career in its tracks. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was a hard one. And I think um, I was very fortunate in the sense that my family is very supportive and they really believed in me and they were kind of gave me that push to go no argue it argue it back with them mm-hmm. go to the head of your department put that word in whereas um I think other parents would probably just accept that the teacher's best and wouldn't push their kids to really fight for that so um I worry sometimes about how many other kids in my situation mm-hmm. wouldn't argue their case and would just mm-hmm. go oh, okay that's it for me now It's not right. It's messed up. What a freaking plot twist. I don't know why I'm so like emotional about it. And then I'm just like, but you're a whole marine biologist, filmmaker and photographer. now. Okay. Right. But damn, to your point, like there's so many other qualified and talented people that are just. Well, you just get judged at so many levels. And I think that was the thing that for me going into this career is like, there's so many hurdles you have to get past. Mm -hmm. And it's so often someone's opinion that's just standing in your way. And it's just, um, yeah, everyone's acting as a stepping stone and it can be one professor that just blocks, yeah. blocks you from ever getting to that next step. And I, I initially started like, did you fall into this? And no, you worked your fucking ass off for this. Ain't no fall. Like you climbed your ass into this. Like, and I also think it's very admirable. I'm, I always think um, very fondly of people that know what they want and go so hard after what they want. I feel that a lot of us tend to let that sidetrack or the opinions of others or someone saying or, you know, um, suggesting that you may or may not be good at something really influence their actual view of how capable uh, they are of doing something. And then also I've always been curious about people that are able to know what they want so early on because I think even at 19 it was what so it was 16 that you started the a school yeah and you asked your parents to put you in the private school so that you could get yeah I asked them to send me to boarding school (laughs) it was it was horrible (laughs) it was like yeah by far the, the worst couple of years of my life living in some posh boarding school where I did not fit in at all um but it was it was worth it it paid off in the end 
that's a whole nother podcast episode like the whole boarding school experience wow I mean, it was literally like hogwarts they had to wear a cloak to assembly like an actual <laughs> so like a British. like a cape cloak like a cloak a cloak with a hood yeah like a cloak <laughs> i mean i went to private school so we always had to wear a fucking uniform and we lost our shit when they made us actually wear like uniform shoes because that was like your one your one little your one sliver of individuality was uh, like you would struggle in boarding school. <laughs> uh, that was me- oh my gosh, a cloak. Yeah, you were color color coordinated by your houses, and each house had its own colored cloak. <laughs> that sounds like Spirit Week. We all had um, like our gym shirts were color coordinated, and um, shout out to that school's clothes now. <laughs> all right, Stan Agnes. <laughs> oh well, um, they gave us which and at this point it was cool because we got like when you come in you get a t-shirt and it is a um it's your class color so our class color was green so is that big you know class spirit team spirit is like oh come on freshman class we're great oh my god so all four years you carry your color and it's just but it was just our gym shirt you know what i mean it was like gym shirt uniform (laughs) we didn't wear fucking cloaks yikes (laughs) whoa but i mean just even knowing that this is what you wanted and fought so hard for it at 16 is very, very admirable. So kudos to you for that, because I still, at the big age of 36, don't know (laughs) what the fuck I want to do. I just know I need to make things. I need to create things. I need to talk to people. And I need to um, do it in a way that uh, feels good. Like, I don't necessarily want to talk to people and create things for someone else's company or someone else's business, because then I still feel like, all right, well, you're still putting me in the little box and the structure. And then you have your deadlines and the stuff that you want me to do, blah, 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 blah. So I really, like, people that know what they want, That is, that's a strength. And I don't know if many of you guys know that because it at least gives you direction. You've got a fucking goal that you can work towards and it can be a lot more uh, freeing if you, if you don't know um, how life looks on the side of people who are just like universally interested or just like curious in a lot of things is kind of intimidating to decide this is what I want. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do everything to do this. So shout out to y'all. All of y'all that know what the fuck you want and actually do it. So back to conservation. As tourists, people that um, travel, see the world and snorkel. I don't even really like snorkeling, tell you the truth. And it's funny. Let me explain first. Here's why. I am a baby intermediate swimmer. So I can swim, right? I'm not um, very good but I'm also not very bad. So I, I trust that if I jump in, I'm going to live. I'll be fine. But the first time I went snorkeling was in Cuba. It was a day full of first. It was fucking magical. And I will forever hold that day very dear to me. But I know that the guy that so it was just three of us, it was myself, another young lady that was on the excursion that we booked and the tour guide. Uh, the majority, he didn't speak much English to his credit. I'll give him that. uh, I can see that. But I don't know that he also realized that I needed as much direction as I thought I did. Like the whole breathing through my mouth really tripped me up. It was, I had to concentrate so hard just to not breathe out of my nose. And I find myself to be, I think I'm an intelligent person, but it, it was tripping me up. And so I'm trying to enjoy what's going on. The flippers weren't really flippering. And I'm like trying to like 
deep, your mouth, like the mouth, breathe through your mouth, calm down, relax. And it was a whole like conversation I'm having with myself, like, you got it, like, you're fine, enjoy it. Oh, look at the things. And it's like, oh, wait, what's your foot? It's, oh, it's a thing. <laughs> and then things are coming at you and you're seeing things. And like you said, that you don't know what the fuck you're going to see. We're in the fucking ocean someplace. I don't know where I am. I'm a fucking city girl. I, you put me in the water. All right, fine. But there's usually a beach attached to the water. This was the first time I'd been to a, um, a beach that wasn't Sure. It was just, we were, we had to hike up something. Uh, I guess we hiked through some area after we waded across a river, which was, well, mad cool. We waded across a river. Then we did hiking up. It was a hard hike too. And then we did cliff diving. So it was cliffs, cliffs, rocks, and ocean. That was fun. But then we had to hike more, go down like a really weird, space and to get to the snorkeling. So I was already stressed. So in my defense, it was, it was a heavy day. (laughs) It was a lot going on. But the second time I went snorkeling was in Bali. And that was way more enjoyable. I feel like I was able to see so much more. And that was just in the middle of the ocean. So we just jumped over the side of the boat and went, you know, swimming around from there. And I remember getting a little bit so I panicked (laughs) I got caught in like the what is that the the cross current or the tide or whatever and we're still a really really like you can see the shore by the time we had drifted over but we weren't like anywhere near the shore I'd have tired the fuck out before I made it to the to the to the to the sand y'all but there was reef and I was just like, oh, wait, you're not supposed to stand on the reef. But I was so tired. And I'm just like, oh, God, I don't want to touch it. But I can't tell how far it is or how close it is. So in my head, I'm like, the reef, you got to protect the reef. But I'm like, oh, it's taking me out. So again, I'm panicking. And what do we do with the reef as travelers that, you know, aren't marine biologists? How do we, what do we not do? Because I'm sure there are a million ways that we can, you know, try to be not try to be, or there are a million ways we can lend our voices and lend our talents and funds to um, activists such as yourself and c- conservationists that are doing the actual work. But what do we not do? How do we respect the oceans that we're in? It's one thing to Google it and find out what ocean you're actually swimming in, but then how don't we fuck it up? Yeah, no, for sure. I think it's, um, it sounds to me like you might got stuck in a rip current, which is absolutely terrifying I think for everyone who always asks me like what's the scariest thing I've ever seen in the ocean um I always say like it is the currents themselves like I think Mm -hmm. that is deserves our respect so much and I've dived on sites before that I've dived a hundred times and all of a sudden dropped in and got caught on a down current that is just dragging me down and it happens occasionally and I think it's so important that we are competent and kind of ready to ready to handle that when it comes because it is absolutely scary and in those situations where the current picks up like that and you have no choice but to grab the reef of course you have to grab the reef because you can get blasted way offshore and, and you would lose your life from whereas what you, what you could be doing is trying to find a dead bit of coral and holding on to that and it's so important that you kind of respect the ocean because it is it is brutal um mm-hmm. it can be pretty unforgiving it's like one of the most beautiful things in the world but it is it is a harsh place if you do not understand it and if you don't respect it so um 
yeah, always be careful and always kind of, that's why it's so important to kind of have a local guide or go with local guidance so that you don't end up in those situations. I think if you are someone who's a little bit more nervous in that situation, like just make sure you kind of vocalize it to your guide in some capacity because so often places that I've dived or places that I've gone snorkeling, if I don't have a good knowledge of the area, like even now, and I'm a super competent swimmer, really competent diver, like I dive on all sorts of technical equipment. But if I don't know the area, I will always go with a guide mm-hmm. because you just don't know the situation. And I think that's something really simple we can all do just to make sure we're not putting ourselves at risk or in a situation where we'd have to put the environment at risk because we have to protect ourselves. Um, but in terms of... Um, little things that we can do. I know a lot of people talk about reef safe sunscreen. Mm-hmm. It's one of those strange ones where there's a lot of debate around it regarding whether or not the studies were done properly and how much of an mm-hmm. impact reef safe sunscreen will really have and whether or not it's kind of being used as that get out of jail card for conservation when actually there's much bigger issues we should be addressing. I personally am of the sense that I'm not going to do any harm by wearing reef safe sunscreen. And all I could do is something positive for the ocean. So I do always use reef safe sunscreen when I'm in the ocean. But I think it's important that we don't just stop with those little things. Like don't just stop with, I'm not going to use a plastic straw and I'm going to wear reef safe sunscreen. I think we need to take it that little step further. Um, For me, I always bring a little kind of like a net bag with me when I'm at the beach or when I'm in the ocean snorkeling and I pick up trash as I go. Mm -hmm. And it's something that's like so easy and simple to do just to pick up any rubbish that isn't mine and just put it in the bag and stick it in the bin and that's just that little bit of trash that I'm stopping from entering the ocean or just bringing it into my dive with me and it's like there is there's no loss to me in picking up a piece of trash as I see it but it's a huge win for the ocean so that's another one that's really easy to do and really helpful there's also tons of awesome citizen science initiatives as well so for people who are kind of a little bit more comfortable swimming and you do want to go out and go snorkeling and you want to go okay I want to protect this ecosystem that I explored. There's some projects called Coral Watch. There's some called Sea Watch. There's one called Project Baseline. Um, NASA even has one at the moment where you can help them map the ocean floor by just coloring online. Um, Seriously? Yeah, like it's literally a video game and you go online and they'll tell you like, you just color in different types of coral for them on the app and you'll help them map the ocean floor. And it's this awesome little project that's allowing citizen scientists to basically document huge amounts of ocean and there's also similar projects like that for kelp and for seagrasses and if you can and it's literally a matter of just taking a snap on your phone and uploading them into these apps and that gives the scientists so much data and if you think that every person that's interacting with our ocean they could be acting as a citizen scientist they could be collecting that critical data that will help us to understand these ecosystems so it's always good to kind of check out those kinds of projects that are going on um, another big one for me is trying to eat sustainably. Okay. I'm personally, I'm I'm not a vegan or anything like that. I just believe in local eating and sustainable eating. So if I'm visiting an area, like I actually advocate for sustainable fishing, I think it's hugely important that we do because there are so many coastal communities, especially island communities that are dependent on our oceans as a source of protein who don't have the option of growing food and animals on land because it's just not the right terrain for it and the alternative would be flying in meat from the other side of the world and it's just not a good it's, it's not a good situation they'd be much better off just to, just sustainably harvesting from their coastal waters and I think it's important that we support those kinds of practices so I always try and look into what are the sustainable fish where I'm eating and trying to support that local community as well and I think that 
if we are more mindful with the things that we eat and also making sure you do eat at the local restaurants don't just eat in the resort <laughs> make sure yeah. you're putting your money back into the community and supporting those communities that are doing the good work that's personally why i prefer airbnbs one because i in my head i feel as if i'm less of a target if that makes sense i feel like when you walk out of a hotel especially if i'm someplace where i um don't look like the local people boom she's not from here let's charge her like wild extra bread from to get one place or another place or oh she's asking for x we're going to tell her x squared because we know that they're going to charge x y and z there or that i don't know i just feel as if ah let me do my part to make myself kind of blend in as best as possible and then just shut up but then for me airbnbs I try to at least source it out from someone that is from the area, as opposed to if I'm going to, um, ex uh, example, Bali, I don't want to uh, rent a house from Smiling Susan. I'd rather, you know, rent the house from, you know, Joe that fucking lives there that's been there. This is his grandmother's house and he moved in with his wife and he's, you know, just renting out a home that's been in his family as opposed to someone that has just purchased property in another country and now is renting it out to other tourists. I also feel like, you know, little things like booking excursions and tours with people on Airbnb. These are generally people that just live in the area as opposed to, you know, mega corporations that are listing on Viator doing huge, and it's nothing wrong with like a bus tour or something like that, but mix it up. If you're going to do like a huge bus tour that is part of a really big network of travel companies or whatever, also throw in a walking tour from somebody that has lived there for, you know, all 40 years of their lives or, you know, got married, moved there 20 years ago and has loved the city ever since kind of thing. I try to, to your point in eating sustainably and going to re local restaurants, it doesn't have to just stop at the food. Like you can also go to boutiques and shops if you want to get your nails done, mani-pedi massages. Like you don't have to go to necessarily the mall you can go to something that's going to be on a local street and put money back into the communities that you're not just, you're taking up space. Like you're taking um, people's time and you're paying for their time, but it just goes a little bit further to do your part to leave some good behind in the places that you visit. 100%. So I think for me, like I even take it, I take it a step further because a lot of the time when I'm traveling, I'm usually traveling because of work in some capacity. Either it's because I'm doing an underwater photography expedition where I'm trying to get photos for some kind of article or a bigger project, or because I'm working on a film project. And usually I'm there for quite a quite a unique reason. And I think that marine science especially is some it's a science that we don't see a huge variety of voices in from different communities. And you mainly do see American or British marine biologists on TV. And you don't tend to see people from these smaller communities, more, more rural communities out in these locations, often where the work is taking place. And I think it's so important that we kind of invest that time back into local community. So when I do kind of work in areas like in Indonesia or like out in Micronesia, 
I will usually try and organize some kind of talk either through a local dive shop or through a local school to be able to kind of give that information back to the community to be able to show them this is what I'm working on this is what's in your local waters this is Mm. why you should appreciate it show them the photography show them the film engage them and kind of give these kids this idea of going you know you could do this as well like this isn't just for me and here's how you could do it and kind of giving that information back to them and I think it's so important that we do when we do travel to these places, we don't just go and take, we also try and give back as much as we can. It's very, um, I don't want to say funny, but ironic, I guess, that you say that. I was just reading um, a thread on Humans of New York. So it's this hugely popular, um, I won't say, I don't think he started on, I think his name is Brandon Stanton. And he's got this platform where he just takes these incredible photographs of people in New York, but he couples it with their story. So he'll ask them their story and people reveal some of the most heartbreaking, heartwarming, just they really, he does an incredible job of getting this candid information. And today I was reading the thread of this gentleman from Ghana and he was telling us about he had a child young. It brought shame to his family. Long of the short, he figured photography might be a great out for him. But he stumbled into um, all the time he spent at the, what do you call it, Internet Cafe, that photojournalism was an actual option as opposed to just taking photographs of like weddings and birthdays and stuff like that, because it wasn't really like a huge market for that in Ghana, according to the way he was telling the story. He ended up finding that there were so many foreigners coming in and telling the story of Ghana and Africa in general. And he was just like, well, where are the African photojournalists? Like, where are the people from here telling their own stories? As opposed to doing, you know, some kind of, uh, what's, like, I see the picture in my head. Like, you know how somebody goes to an aquarium and just like looks at all the stuff and you know the exhibits or you go to the zoo and you're you're looking it's like don't make people feel like a spectacle don't make people feel or communities feel as if they are um a commodity that you're just you know taking the picture of them and you're telling their story like you're telling it from your eye or you're giving it your you know, personal perspective or your lens on it, as opposed to I'm from this community. So I'm going to tell the story of this community. I'm, this is, you know, the block that I'm from. So if am I going to photograph the block, might as well be me. So I love that you're going and sharing that knowledge with the communities and letting them know like, Hey y'all, you can do it too. It's so important. And it's, a, it's something we talk about a lot in filmmaking and it's something that when I started studying filmmaking and understanding it, it was something I've always prioritized. And it's something I hope that as I kind of develop in this industry and I get the chance to be more, to have more control and to mm-hmm. direct and produce more independently is definitely something that I see carrying through into my work when I when I do have that level of control at the moment, I do not. Um, but it's um, it was something we call authentic voice. And I think it's so important. And yep. it's just the fact that I wanna hear those stories from the people who are experiencing them firsthand. I don't want to always feel like I'm telling them from this background. And I think it was part of the things that when I was making my own film, I spent so much time trying to find the right story to tell. And eventually was like, I think the only one that I really feel comfortable to tell is my own. That's the story I know the best. And that's the story that I feel like I can give the most, the most to at this stage in my career. But I think um, in the future, I would love to be going a lot more into 
arming people with these tools and I think it's it's so important and it's sort of one of the reasons I've been doing some work with a brilliant organization called Girls Who Click and it's entirely about empowering young women and young teenage girls to get into wildlife photography and conservation photography and conservation photo stories and journalism and that's been such a fantastic experience and the hope through that is that we can kind of create these platforms where young women can go for guidance so that they can start to tell these stories and we start to get more of a variety of voices because that for me is the thing that's the most important with the conservation movement is that it's not something that impacts one person it's something that impacts everybody mm-hmm. and we each can impact our community very very differently so my story will relate to my community but your story would relate better to your community right so you need loads of people telling the same conservation narrative but from their perspectives if we're going to reach the biggest audience and we need everybody engaged not just one type of person from one type of background okay. <laughs> That was big. I really like that point to individual storytelling, connecting more with people from, you know, that community. Like, I mean, I, I can understand, I can sympathize, I can empathize, I can connect, but it's always a difference when somebody from your neighborhood or someone from your, and community isn't just like, localized neighborhood community extends to um the diaspora community extends to you know i mean if you want to different podcasters uh community extends to curly hair girls community extends to whatever you whatever however you see yourself and the groups that you see yourself in that includes community but what has been your favorite destination to do your work that's really if you can hard. <laughs> that part if you can <laughs> there uh, I'm split between two places mm-hmm. so one of the places that I will always remember as being one of my best underwater experiences ever is a place called Revia Hijera and I may have butchered the name slightly so <laughs> don't hold me to, that. Right to me. <laughs> um, also known as the Scoro Island San Benedito and Wakapatida and they're an archipelago of three tiny seamounts out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It takes three days to get there. Holy shit. No one near land. And it is basically, they are, one's a volcano, one's a volcanic rock, and one's a bit of an island. Um, no one lives there. There's a military base on one of them, but that's, that is all that is there. But when you drop down in the ocean there, I have never seen anything quite like it. It's wow. just like this incredible, almost lunar landscape. And from the moment I dropped in, I had oceanic mantas, some of them almost eight meters wide. So you um, imagine something as it feels like a spacecraft coming into <gasps> land, like a full plane just coming in above you. And mantas to me are one of these species that's just absolutely breathtaking. They're elasma banks, so related to the shark, but they're completely flat. Mm-hmm. And they have the largest brain in the animal kingdom. Not, oh. in, the, sorry, not in the animal kingdom, in the ocean for brain to body size ratio. So okay. for their size, their brain is like the biggest it could be. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they are just absolutely fascinating in the way that they look at you and they're kind of just the interest that they have. And they love mm. bubbles. So I'm usually on scuba and they will just play in them like it's a bubble bath. How and fucking cute is that? Amazing thing. And they are just the cutest but most lovely species. And I had been playing with a manta for like a good 10 minutes or so. And then I got engulfed by a school of bottlenose dolphins and I had a baby dolphin swimming next to me for a while. And then I had another oceanic manta above my head. 
and um, I got to the end of this big canyon and an entire school of hammerheads swam past me. And I was just, I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Nothing in this life could ever top this moment. It was, it was so, so special. And it just, it felt like I was in an aquarium or in a bit of Finding Nemo. And it was just, everything was there all at the same time and just all around me. Wow. So, that's that fucking incredible cool. <laughs> I was supposed to swim with the mantas in Bali and I was oh. terrified terrified mind you no, I still went so in the gentle. water but oh girl didn't matter spiders like they, <laughs> I'm bigger than a spider right but it was just like still not fucking with you but they uh the water was too choppy so we ended up having to bypass where we were supposed to go in the water and then we ended up doing just the snorkeling where I thought I was gonna die and break the reef and <laughs> totally fuck up the planet <laughs> that was the swim with the mantas experience but I did swim with sea lions and um Peru. That was really fun. And that's when I learned there is a right and wrong way to put on a life vest. I uh, had it on the wrong way, folks. You uh, can step into them. Plot twist. Didn't know that was a thing. And um, so I kept like <laughs> twisting the whole time. So I'm trying, I'm like, how hard is it to just sit? So on one side of my head, I'm like, this shouldn't be difficult. But on the other side, my body's like, bro, it is. You're struggling. Thankfully, the guy saw me struggling and he basically <laughs> grabbed the back of the uh, vest and swam me closer. But then we did like a big chain so that we all would kind of stay floated. Well, <laughs> buoyant, I guess, whatever. But so how did you find your voice? You tell stories so well. And like, I think that finding the right words to say, but then also being able to capture all of that in imagery. And like, it's, it can, and they, they can both stand alone. So it's like, I was listening, I rewatched the, um, the film that you did and I'm running around the house and I'm just like, oh, damn, yeah, that makes sense. You might as well just, you know, fish better. OK, save the reef. But then I remember I pop back in the room. I'm like, damn, look at that. Wow. So you caught up in your watch and it's just like they can stand alone. But then together, of course, win. But how did you find your voice in terms of being able to decide what is important information for you to get across and then what is important for you to capture? How did that work out for you? It's a really interesting one. It's actually it's something that I struggled with a lot. And um, I did, a, I studied a master's in wildlife filmmaking. I came back to the UK to do that. And it was a, a fantastic master's program that was run in partnership with the BBC. And I was given some fantastic guidance on wildlife filmmaking and how you make stories effective and how you do wildlife storytelling. And um, but my dad's also, he's a filmmaker and photographer. And he was completely against the idea of me going to university to do a master's in filmmaking. Hmm. because he thought they were going to teach me how to make, tell stories like everybody else tells stories. Okay. And he was Fair. like, you don't, you don't want to go and do a degree where all they're going to do is teach you to do it their way when right. you already have a voice and to not forget that. So it was a really interesting time making that film because it was, um, it was my student final project. Mm -hmm. And I was getting all of this guidance from people who were the industry professionals who were like, this is the structure it should follow. This is how yeah. it should be done. And then there was my dad going, don't do it like they told you to. <laughs> Go rogue, do something. Fucking rebel. <laughs> exactly. Swim faster. Um, <laughs> and I, I ended up in such a like weird little echo chamber 
by myself I was living on a boat at the time in the middle of Bristol Harbour which is the worst possible place to be living in the middle of winter and I had a leak and it was just I was just sitting in this dingy little boat trying to write a script (laughs) and I spent so much time going backwards and forwards with it and what I realized is that what I really love is I love lyrical um, voiceover I don't Mm -hmm. like voiceover that is just like I'm here on the south coast of England and this is a shark um, I didn't want to be that person. I didn't, I doesn't, isn't something that connects with me. And I think that quite often that storytelling felt quite privileged and almost quite like, Hey, look how cool my day is. Yeah. How's yours going? And it didn't, I didn't want that to be the way the storytelling came across. I think I much more wanted it to almost be just a string of consciousness <laughs> mm-hmm. and to kind of bring people into my world and the way that I think about things and the way that I see things and bring them into the beauty of it just, and the wonder of it just as much as the heartbreak so I was very much so looking at all of the scripting for it going okay well here's the facts that I want to put in here is the messaging I want to get through here are the voices that are really important to me so Mm -hmm. these are the people that I want to make sure tell the story with me and I did a lot of different interviews in the countries that I visited with a whole variety of people and there were some other interviews with some fantastic people that I just couldn't fit in the edit and I was so frustrated because I wanted everyone's voice in it but um, it was a lot of spending time going, okay, well, whose voice is balanced with each other? Who's perspective? How was that person going to add more? And then how do I make sure that my voice doesn't overshadow theirs? And being very kind of careful with, with the way that you do and making sure that you're respectful to, to those people and allowing, allowing their voice to shine through as well. And I think that's something that's quite hard to do when you're directing and when you're interviewing, because quite often you go into an interview knowing what you want to get out of someone. Mm-hmm. knowing exactly these are the questions I want to hear this is what I want them to say that's going to be great that's going to fit my narrative and then I go into the next section and I think I went into it like that because that was how I was told to do it but when I was actually sitting down a lot of the time you'd have these conversations and it was like the best parts were always the parts that were completely away from what I'd asked them it was mm-hmm. the bits where you really had them coming through or it was when I stopped the camera, then I would get the best material from them because suddenly they're relaxed and they're just being themselves. So I think throughout filming, my interview techniques started to change so that I was making people more comfortable and making them more themselves so that that would shine through as well. And there was um, there's one beautiful moment in Palau where there's a guy who's just like, talks about the relationship between people and nature. And that was entirely him. And I was immediately like, okay, I know I'm going to use that. <laughs> and how do I then build my voice around that to ensure that mm-hmm. his voice kind of really rings true through the middle of it? Um, so yeah, it's a lot of time in the edit, a lot of time kind of thinking about different ways of playing it. I I recut it a lot. <laughs> and it became, um, it's, a, it's a weird one because I think actually now I watch the film and I hate it. Really? It's because I've, I've watched it too many oh. times. I spent too much time kind of getting angry with myself or why didn't I get the shot like this it'd be better if I didn't like I that get it. and why didn't I ask him this question and why did I do this and it's um yeah one of those one of those projects that you I think yeah, my dad said that you don't finish a film project you abandon it and that's very mm. much how I felt you did a beautiful job <laughs> thank you you did a beautiful fucking job <laughs> the, the the narrating your voice is so soothing to listen to and you absolutely um accomplished your goal of just letting people in as opposed to that hey guys look how cool my life is oh my god ocean 
that never came across. It was that all. That was my biggest concern. I was like, oh God, I'm going to be this really privileged girl that's flying around the world. Because then <laughs> so- I would have just been like, oh yeah, cute. And moving <laughs> on back to Supernatural. But no, it it caught me. And here we are. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent job from someone that has absolutely no clue about <laughs> all of the Marine stuff. But I get the storytelling and I get taking a project personal and never feeling like you're doing it justice. And you did well. You did very Thank well. You. Thank you. Now, how did it get from science and then your love of being creative in art? How did you get comfortable with bringing those together? with being able to do the photography and the filmmaking? Yeah, for me, it was kind of an, a natural progression because I, I just loved underwater photography. Mm-hmm. I started, my dad, actually, he gave me one of those like little disposable cameras you get at an airport when I was a kid, when we were diving together, because he loves photography. And it was very much so I would stop swimming off and following the fish if I also had a camera. <laughs> and it was a part of a way to teach me buoyancy as well and just to make me a better diver and I started getting really into it and I would always be comparing my pictures to his and mm-hmm. going backwards and forwards and then I think throughout my degree I started seeing it as this method this way that I can kind of convey my research convey the things that I'm learning and reach a big audience with them and I think I realized that there are so many people I meet all the time who go oh when I was a kid I wanted to be a marine biologist but then mm-hmm. they never follow it through And it always seems like it's this dream career that's out of reach. And what I loved about my camera was that I can give people that experience. I can take them on that journey. I can show them this world that a lot of people don't feel they have access to. And I think it just strengthens the science so much more when you can show people Mm -hmm. what you're working on and why you're working on it and why someone needs to be protected. So I was originally, my photography was much more for fun. But then as I started working more kind of telling conservation stories, I realized how useful my images were for illustrating them and for bringing people along that journey. So I started kind of transitioning much more into kind of photojournalism and telling these stories through my images and using social media to put photos up with long captions to really explain to people the situation or science about the species, a deeper understanding of what's going on, or even just explaining kind of the typical day in the life of a marine biologist working on that. And, um, and people were really intrigued. And then I think for me, film, it was that chance to take it a step further. Mm-hmm. And I think with photography, you're always quite limited. There's only, you've only got one frame. <laughs> Whereas with filmmaking, there was the possibility to really build an emotional journey. And I felt that if I could take people on that emotional journey and show them why I'm so passionate about these species, that there was no way they couldn't feel the same way. So it felt like the most effective method for communicating science. Um, okay. So I normally market myself as a science communicator. I don't think it's say one or the other. It's very much so the two coming together. That's like mad cool. And it's funny you say that because I think if I'm from the last conversation that I had with, because my brother's in uh, school, he's a fellow at uh, Brown, <laughs> proud sister moment. And he's actually a pathobiologist. Like he is... Um, finish he's completing his PhD program to do um pathobiology go fucking figure right (laughs) but he had expressed interest in being the person that is that middleman I'm the one that's explaining the science to the investors I'm the one that's going to get you your money I'm making this big world of science make sense to people that live in their own big worlds and I just want to be that voice in the middle that kind of can explain to you 
why researching here is important, why, you know, focusing here is important. I was just like, that's actually pretty fucking cool. I, and he's very good at it. Like he was explaining something to me and I was just like, oh, I get it. Like, I'm, I'm not dumb, but I also rabbit hole. And then I spend too much time trying to make sense of one thing. And then I'm not listening to you anymore because I'm like, but how does this and what, what would it do? So I do like these whole stories while I'm listening or kind of listening to what someone is saying. And he did such a great job. And I feel that that is such a skill. It's an art to be able to keep someone um, invested in the story that you're telling or in the information that you're giving. It is a, an absolute gift to be able to, you know, explain something that is bigly complicated, you know, and there is such a, a need for people that are able to make complex things very understandable. So thank you for that. Cause we only have the one planet, right? The whole global warming and my yeah. <laughs> seemingly um, excessive fear for the reef. <laughs> I will never forget that. I really felt like, don't be the one, <laughs> don't fuck it up. But thank you for that. And two more questions for you. So how has your ability to actually see and be part of, in a sense, the world underwater, been able to kind of influence your eye as a professional, because this is also work, you know, you're doing mm -hmm. important work. And I think that being able to be so, um, emaciated, well, not emaciated, but like ingrained or, uh, part of the ocean like a lot of us aren't like we'll go swimming we jump in whoa we're here this is so great and we can feel connected to it but you get to go in there where we're not going how has seeing the world from the other end been able to you know influence your decision making as a, as a human being as an adult you know and then also as a business person as a professional I think it's a it's a really interesting one I think for me I always thought when I was younger I was like do what you're passionate about for your work and then you'll never work a day in your life and what I've now learned is that it means that you work every day of your life mm -hmm. because you can never switch off from it and it is kind of just this constant thing and I think um for me I feel very lucky that I do get to work in the space that I'm passionate about but it does make it so much harder sometimes because you feel mm -hmm. like you're putting your all into something and you know that there's a risk. It's like when we look at um, ocean certification and declining fish stocks and all of these things, there's moments where um, my work can get really, really depressing. And you're just reading through so many heartbreaking articles of these ecosystems in decline. And you're like, I'm working at my hardest, but this might not get any better. And it's really hard when you kind of, you have that weight on you. And then you go, but all these other people are looking at me for the inspiration and the solutions. Right. So then how do you then channel that positivity into your work to bring people back up and to educate them at the same time? And I think that that can be, that can for sure be quite draining, but then at the same time, I'm someone who is able to recharge from the ocean. So I, if I feel really run down and if I'm feeling that way, I go for a swim in the sea and I come back out feeling 10 times better. And it is just kind of keeping myself in check and keeping that connection with nature in check and that constant reminder of this is why it's worth it. And when you do remind yourself, it all comes back and that passion comes back. And I also am very fortunate in the sense that I get to work with a lot of very passionate individuals who care so deeply about the things that I care about. 
and that passion is infectious and when people get excited about new research I find myself giddy on calls getting really excited about it as well and I can't switch off and then I go back into my everyday life and I'm trying to tell my boyfriend all about this new cool thing that a shark does and he's just like really we're back on this again um but it, so it is um it's an interesting one kind of how it influences my everyday life but um yeah I don't know it's just it's such a special place and I feel so lucky that I get to work there but I think as well kind of being able to address it from a professional side is fantastic because I get to go to some of the places where other people can't access some of these really remote locations that if I hadn't been working in the industry I know I never would have got the opportunity to visit Um, and I especially wouldn't be able to get the access to some of the research that I get to look through and I get to spend my days reading through amazing papers and chatting to incredible biologists and um, yeah it's just it's a really kind of fascinating place to be when you get to just live inside your passions. That's beautiful and the last question I have for you the difference between free diving and scuba diving and are we playing ourselves by taking like that one day little course or whatever that they'll give like if you go to um you know a different country and want to go scuba diving because I want to scuba dive but I am terrified because we already know how I feel about snorkeling that I'm gonna fuck it up right I don't want to go like way down I'm not trying to go shipwreck deep like I just want to see more than snorkeling is able to do like I'm I enjoy doing things that scare me but at the same time, I human, you know, like I don't, and I, I, I believe the science that says, you know, the whole coming up, your lungs will explode, you know, that whole thing. So are we really putting ourselves at risk by going to like, you know, a surf shop or something and Hey, so I'll be able to snorkel. I mean, scuba dive. Yeah. I'll be able to scuba dive at like the end of the day. Right. Cool. Here's my money. I used to be a dive instructor. I've taken so many people out and I was, I was shocked by some of the people that wanted to go scuba diving in a day. Um, I've taken probably hundreds of divers who can't swim oh. diving because it's not a requirement, which is the most shocking part. And that's the hard thing about when you're working in that industry and you need the money and it's like, I know that I can keep that person alive, but I will be do, doing everything for them. My job yeah. is just, I'm, I am life support down there with somebody who has no idea what they're doing. And my entire existence is just based around keeping that one person alive yeah. for 25 minutes. So I can put them back on the boat and then I can take a deep breath. Babysitting. Um, and the other students who are fantastic. And they're just like, they're naturals and everything's really easy and it's a really fun dive. But I think that's where it's so important that you have a good instructor mm-hmm. who will give you the level of attention that you need. So that if you are someone who is not a strong swimmer and doesn't feel comfortable, that they are there to hold your hand and to control all the equipment and to take that responsibility off of you. Because um, you are essentially on life support the yeah. second that you go underwater. And things can go wrong. And that's why you have to have experience. That's why you practice so much. And it's like, I'm currently um, training on a rebreather, which is a piece of diving equipment that means that I have no bubbles and I recycle my air and it's ran off computer systems and scrubbers and it's sensors everywhere. And big, it's all a bit crazy. And I will not work on that system until I have a hundred hours of practice. Wow. which is a huge amount of time to be just sitting in the bottom of a quarry in England in freezing cold water. But it's about kind of making sure that you are familiar with your mm-hmm. equipment and you understand what you're doing before you put yourself at risk. Right. So I think um, in any of those situations, I'm always wary 
And I think that if you have the time, I would absolutely recommend you do a proper course. Mm-hmm. Do the full three days paddy over the DSD that's just train me up in the afternoon and then stick me in because in reality a 20 minute pool session isn't going to teach you to look after yourself in the water right well 100% reliant on that instructor keeping an eye on you 100% of the time and if you're at a resort location where that instructor is also looking after 10 other people mm-hmm. and maybe they're not the best instructor and they're without drinking the night before <laughs> you're putting a huge amount of pressure on that person to keep you alive right so I would much prefer for me to do an hour-long pool session a shallow try dive another hour-long pool session and build up as a proper diver to then be able to go do those bigger ocean dives and know that if my instructor is not looking at me I can keep myself alive yeah and honestly I'm gonna hold y'all I'm pretty easy to say we black (laughs) if you're not appreciate you keep coming back but I am certain the majority of us are black do with that as you must. Um, not everybody extends the same courtesies to the same people in all the same places. So keep that in mind. Um, where are you going to then throw your life in someone else's hand and in a completely different environment? It's not like a walking tour where if you get lost, it's like, okay, well, I'll find a taxi or I'll walk around until I find somebody that speaks English. Whole ass animals under the ocean, bro whole ass entirely different world so i think i'm gonna i don't know honestly it's not the marine life that you need to worry about i have had some people who just really um, panic stations under the water and like they'll rip their rag out they'll rip their mask off they'll try and rip my rag out they'll try and rip my mask off and i'm like i'm the one trying to keep you alive like let's just stay calm in this situation um but yeah it's it's not it's not for everyone yeah, I feel are those the people that can't swim more often than yeah. not? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Because I'm like, I would never take that shit out no. of my mouth. But I just, it's I don't know. If you can't swim, why do you want to go to 20 meters under the water? No. <laughs> it seems like a really bad idea. Most people I know that can't swim don't even want to get off the boat. That is another level of ballsy that I'm okay not having. But what do people that free dive do? Like I know that they have the snorkel thing. But is that just like holding your breath extra long and then you just expel it slower? Freediving is a really interesting one because you're basically overriding your natural response to breathe. So, you know, if you hold your breath, all of a sudden your body is going, you need to breathe now. That's not actually because you need oxygen. It's because you have too much CO2 building up. Okay. And it's your body's natural reaction to go, I need to get rid of the CO2, but you won't actually... um, what's the word if you're on land not drown oh suffocate <laughs> suffocate one. suffocate okay yeah you won't actually suffocate immediately it's you can go a surprisingly long amount of time um but what you do start to feel is you feel contractions so what you're you're teaching yourself to do is to override those contractions and kind of get past the first like three waves of contractions and that can give you like minutes underwater and then Ooh. you can come up and you can breathe like normal. And it's basically just building up your own tolerance to that CO2. I personally am horrible at it. <laughs> it is it is not for me. I When I'm underwater, I want to be calm. I want to be watching yeah. the fish and watching the ocean and just like taking deep, calming breaths. I don't want to be upside down, feeling like I'm going to throw up um, over and over again. I just, I don't, I don't really, don't really get it. But um, <laughs> keep trying because I think it is a, it is a really good skill to have um but yeah it's 
it's a lot harder work. <laughs> Copy. I won't be doing that. Maybe in another life or like maybe <laughs> retired me. Maybe by the time I'm like in my world, I'm going to say I want to retire by like 45. Oh, no, that's kind of, it's not that far. Uh, let's say 55, maybe 50, 55. Let's be, let's be, let's be big. 50, 55. Then I'll retire and then I can, by then I'll have scuba in my four day class appropriately. And then I'll free dive for shits and gigs. Give it a try. I don't know. We'll see. How can the people support you, Inka? Where can we find you and see your work and what ways would you like to be supported? Yeah, I think um, social media is probably the thing I keep the most up to date on Instagram at Inca Cresswell. You can follow all of kind of my my most current work, but then I also have a website, which is www.incacresswell.com. Which is fire, by the way. <laughs> like, visit, Thanks. link in the bio, all that chat. <laughs> I mean, in the description and shit. It's just like, even going through, I was like going through your website and I'm just like, well, this shit is just aesthetically pleasing. There's there's information here, but I'm caught up on the photos and even just the way it moves and flows. Well done. <laughs> Shout out to that one. Thank you. That's thanks to Wix for helping <laughs> me with my awful coding skills. Um, oh, but yeah, and you did it? Yeah, I did. I did lots of drag and drop. <laughs> Girl, pat on the back, bro. That was great. <laughs> But um, yeah, on there, there's a page that's press and articles where I, I release a lot of all of the photo stories or articles that I'm working on at the time. And there's all sorts of different research on there. And then there's also an events page where you can see kind of all my latest talks and other events. And um, yeah, those are probably the, the most exciting things. But there's some, usually some interesting talks coming up. Okay. Thank you. From the bottom of my little land dwelling heart, <laughs> I appreciate your time so much. And thank you for sharing your story and for your information. As always, folks, all the links will be in the description box. And always remember that travel is more than vacation. And if you open your eyes to the possibilities, you can gain so much from your time around the world. All right, y'all. Bye and shit. <laughs>